Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore stories on how assisted reproductive technology is changing lives and changing our world. This new technology, which allows egg, sperm, embryo donation, cryopreservation, and surrogacy, is mixing up genetics, legal, and social parenting. But we want to tell the personal stories that the technology isn't designing babies and a world of Gattaca or Handmaid's Tale, but real lives being changed. I'm Ellen Trackman. I'm an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law. I also write a weekly legal column of the same name, I Want to Put a Baby in You, for the website abovethelaw.com, focusing on the legal issues of assisted reproductive technology. And I'm excited to work with my co-host and sister, Jennifer White. Hi, I am Jennifer White. I am an infertility survivor. I'm a mom of one. I'm also a proud military spouse and type A organizer extraordinaire who is the co-owner and director of Bright Future Families, which is Colorado Surrogacy, Montana Surrogacy, and New Mexico Surrogacy. And I have the honor of being that co-owner and director with, oh, my sister, Ellen Trackman. And (laughs) we today want to talk about adventures in extreme babysitting of both embryos and sperm. So a big shout out, of course, because we just have to do this very quickly, to Kim Kardashian and Kanye West for the birth of their child via gestational carrier very recently. Chicago West. Congratulations on the birth of Chicago West. Yes. Uh, and also an interesting news, less less um, well-known celebrity-wise, but um, really interesting case filed recently on immigration where two couples who, same-sex couples who had two children, where one parent was a U.S. citizen, one child was granted U.S. citizenship, and the other was not. Um, really fascinating, especially for one couple, the children are twins. So born the same time, but one is genetically linked to the U.S. parent and one to to his partner, who is not a U.S. citizen, so both both couples recently filed suit, um, and we will see as they fight their way to have both their children recognized as um, as U.S. citizens. Such so another other interesting case that's coming along, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But it was just filed recently. Hopefully, when they get to the point where they are able to, uh, we hopefully we can track them down and talk to them and hear their story from them. But you know, I of course I understand it's it's not at a good time to do that at the moment. Uh, but speaking of talking to people, if anybody out there, we know we're new right now and that there aren't going to be any calls at the, uh, in this episode or probably in a few subsequent because nobody will have had been able to do so. We do have a hotline number that if you have any thoughts on this, if we maybe we can do a shout out for you. You can call our hotline number at 303-997-1903 and leave us a message and hopefully we'll either play it or be able to respond to your comments on the air next time. Uh, once again, 303-997-1903. We are so excited that we had a chance to speak to Amira. She's an attorney who is based out of Los Angeles. She has a really pretty amazing, amazing life story when we've talked to her. She actually, just in little tidbits, she speaks three languages. She speaks English, Hebrew, and Spanish. She went to Cal Berkeley for her undergrad. I'm not hearing the go Cal no. from Ellen. Go Bears. Go Cal. Um, she actually has her master's in public health. 
as well from UCLA and graduated from the UCLA School of Law. So we are so excited to talk to Amira and uh, hear about her really fascinating cases that she has had in the past. We are here today with Amira Hazenbush of the Law Office of Amira Hazenbush. Um, I'm excited to to talk with her, one, because she's an expert in LGBT law and policy and has experience working with the Williams Institute with UCLA, Um, but today we're going to focus on three very specific situations that she worked with, which are a bit of lessons to to be learned and um, learning from other people's mistakes. But Amira, welcome to the show. Please give us your own little intro of yourself as well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, I, I work primarily on uh, family formation law, surrogacy, sperm donor agreements, egg donor agreements, adoption. And my focus is LGBT families, but I work with anyone who needs help. And um, I also do name and gender changes. And uh, I am a UCLA law grad, uh, Berkeley undergrad. So I'm a product of the UC system. And uh, I'm out here in sunny Los Angeles, although it's very cold today, and I'm happy to be here with you guys. <laughs> Yay, wonderful. That's super exciting. So I, I guess just dive right in. Um, tell us one of your your most memorable stories, um, especially related to, I mean, since, you know, from our perspective, the, the most fun for us is talking about gestational surrogacy agreements. Do you have any really memorable gestational surrogacy cases gone wrong? Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I was I was actually just on the phone with a potential new client the other day and she already had her surrogate picked out who's a friend of hers and I just couldn't recommend to her enough to get an agency. I just over and over and over said, I know you already have this person picked out, still get an agency. There are so many steps in this process that an agency can help you with and that I as your lawyer can try to walk you through, but I'm not the expert in every single step of surrogacy. I'm the legal expert. And one of the reasons I say that is because one of my first non-agency surrogacy clients, it was uh, kind of a bit of a nightmare. Um, the Tell us. Intended- <laughs> the intended parents. <laughs> the intended parent um, was looking for two surrogates simultaneously, which is a whole conversation in and of itself. Um, and there are people who go back and forth on on concerns about that and whether it's better if you want to have two kids to have two surrogates instead of asking one person to carry twins. But he was upfront with both of these surrogates, and he said, "You know, this is what I'm looking for." And what was what was his reasoning that, to look for two at the same time? I think he was trying, I do think that he was actually trying to protect the surrogates from having to carry twins. I think he was trying to be uh, understanding of of the health of the surrogates and that it is better off for them to be carrying a singleton pregnancy instead of multiples. But he really wanted two children at the same time. He really wanted two children at the same time. He felt very strongly about that. Um, He wasn't my client, so I didn't get all of the background on Mm -hmm. why but he not only did he want two children at the same time, but he wanted them born at the same time, which obviously there's only so That's much hard. Hard. <laughs> I, I was to say, that happens. Babies come when babies want to come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he clearly had some very um, strong opinions. Uh, he was somebody who I think was used to getting what he wanted when he wanted all the time. Um, and, you know, I was representing one of the surrogates. And they, you know, started through the process and because he felt so strongly about, you know, the babies need to be born at the same time, we need to be doing the cycles at the same time, we need to be starting on everybody's next cycle, which is in three weeks. So, you know, it was a very, go ahead. I say, Amira, I hate to interrupt. So he actually was doing, trying to do double surrogates without an agency also? 
without an agency. They found each other, I think, Holy on Craigslist or something oh, like that. Craigslist. I mean, this was wow. Yeah, okay, this was not this was not anything where there was any real screening happening. The surrogate who I represented had been a surrogate before, yeah. so you know she did That's know helpful. she was getting her. She knew what the process was like, and she'd had, I think, an overall good experience, but she'd had some negative experiences in her first surrogacy also that she was able to then express, I want to make clear that I'm not comfortable with X, Y, and Z happening during this next round, and we want that in the contract. And so, you know, I think her having some experience did help the process. You know, it did make it easier for her to be able to um know what to expect and and uh, express her own needs and expectations in the process. Can you talk about what those XYZ kind of examples were that she wanted to improve from the first time? I think so. I don't I don't think she'd have a problem with me talking about it. In her first surrogacy, everything went well during the pregnancy and then during the actual labor um the intended parents wanted to be in the room and looking at the labor. And she felt like that was a violation of her privacy for them to be really right there catching the baby while she was completely exposed. Um, And I guess they hadn't talked through that fully before starting the process or during the process or even, you know, right before she went into labor. And so she asked for a little more privacy for them to at least stay, you know, on the top half of her body while, while they were in the room with her. And, uh, and apparently they were adamant that they needed to be where they were and grabbed a contract. I guess they had the contract with them and sort of threw it in her face while she was in the middle of labor oh, and terrible. said, no, no, we have to do what we want. So, yeah. So it left her with a very bad taste in her mouth, yeah. obviously, even though the pregnancy and everything had gone well and, you know, everything after the pregnancy, I think, or after the labor was fine, you know, she felt like she was kind of, uh, disrespected in the labor process. Right. And obviously that's not a time to be negotiating contracts. <laughs> right. You know, so we made sure that uh, in this new contract that she was working on, that there was very explicit terms and in, in terms of what her levels of comfort were in privacy and medical appointments and in labor and everything else mm-hmm. so that they could be involved to the point that she still felt, still felt comfortable. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So it was good that she knew that about herself and sort of had had this experience before that wasn't so bad that she didn't want to do it with surrogacy again, but that she wanted to make clear what her boundaries were. But uh, so how did it go with this intended father? Yeah, so so this is the thing. He felt very strongly about having the babies born close together, and that meant you know getting started as soon as possible, which meant trying to negotiate an entire contract in a matter of when I first started, I think he had said, I want this contract signed by next Friday. And I think that was about 10 days later, which you know is not a lot of time to negotiate an entire surrogacy contract between people who've had no prior agency screening or anything. Um, you know, and so we did a lot of late nights, a lot of back and forth. Um, and, and he had also, discussed a lot of things with her before she had representation that really weren't fair propositions to ask a surrogate to agree to. And so I had to advise her and say, no, you could actually be losing money out of your own pocket if you agree to say, not have reimbursement for lost wages on bed rest, you know, standard contract requirement that the surrogate is never out money because of engaging in this process. 
And so, you know, he obviously got very frustrated because he felt like she had already agreed to certain terms before they started the process, but you couldn't ethically, there, there was no agreement that could happen without her having independent representation. And once I sort of explained those things to her, you know, and had to give pushback to his lawyer, you know, he wasn't very happy about that. And there was a lot of back and forth at the end of the day. Um, he wasn't being respectful about her own bodily autonomy and her need to be able to um, set the pace in terms of if the first embryo transfer doesn't go through, you know, it, it can be a, a physically painful process sometimes to, to go through all the injections and all of that. And, and she had said she might need to take a cycle break and in order to, to be ready for the next transfer. And because he was so set on having the babies born close together and at the same time, um, he wasn't willing to be flexible on that in a way that she felt comfortable. And honestly, with the way that he was sort of rushing through the process and being very pushy, I think there were a lot of red flags that were outside of that. And it sort of all built up together to a point where she decided she wasn't comfortable working with him anymore and they couldn't find agreement on a few really key contract terms. And so they decided not to sign the contract together. Okay. So everyone walks away. He finds someone else, better, better match and everyone's happy. We've gotten to normal right. level at this point. We haven't gotten to nightmare. Yeah. I know. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. It's unfortunate when there's a broken match, obviously you want the match to work and you know that there's a higher risk of there being a broken match when there has been no real screening and there hasn't been an agency, but you know, obviously you want it to work. So he was furious. He was very, very angry. Like I said, I think he's someone who's used to getting what he wants when he wants it most of the time, um, or maybe all of the time. And he demanded his money back from me um, and from the doctor and uh, the doctor who he paid to do the medical screening. Um, I don't know what happened from the doctor. I didn't talk to the doctor's side of things, but you know, I, I made it very clear to him that you know, unfortunately, my job is not to represent him. My job was to represent the surrogate. And that's what I did, even if that means that she doesn't sign the contract. Um, and, you know, he was sort of sent a few angry emails and, and threatened to report me to the bar, which I, you know, sent him a link. If he wanted to report me, he was welcome to do that. Do you know if he did? Uh, not to my knowledge, although I've heard that the California bar, unless you do something really egregious, I think they get so many complaints that you probably don't know about it if if they do, um, I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong. And so I wasn't really concerned. You know, I, I told him, I understand you're, you know, you've put a lot of time and money and energy and, and, uh, you know, emotional energy into this process. And it's very disappointing when it doesn't go through. I get all of that. I get that it's an emotional thing. And so, you know, there's only so much I can do to say that I'm sorry it didn't work out. Um, and I didn't hear from him for a while and I thought sort of things had died down. And then maybe three months later, I got a call from my client from the potential surrogate who did not end up being a surrogate. Um, mm -hmm. she had gotten a letter, um, threatening to sue her for the cost of my legal fees and her, the medical fees for her medical screening. So, you know, obviously he was still sort of on the war path. I looked at the letter. I realized that it had been written to look like it was coming from a lawyer, but if you actually looked closely, it wasn't written by a lawyer. And Great. Ugh. You know, and I said, look, this isn't a, this isn't actually a lawyer. I looked up the person's name. They're not in the California bar. And they, you know, purposely used some sort of evasive language to make it sound lawyerly without officially saying that they're a lawyer. And I said, just, you know, file that under stupid and just ignore it. And, uh, and then about, and then it was over. No, <laughs> 
right. Oh, no, that's okay. not the end. Okay. <laughs> him, you know, maybe he'll just get over it. No, maybe two or three months after that, he actually did file a claim in small claims court. And he sued her for my fees and the medical fees, which, of course, she was, you know, terrified. I mean, look, surrogates aren't are doing this because they care about the people, but they're also doing this because it's a financial boost. So, you know, I think my fees and the medical fees together were about thirty five hundred dollars, which to him is a drop in the bucket. You know, it's nothing to him. But to her, it's a really significant amount of money. And that was going to be really serious if she was going to have to pay that back. So, of course, she was really, really stressed out about it. And um, I don't know how small claims court works in every state, but I can tell you in California, you're actually not allowed to bring a lawyer to small claims court. So even if I wanted to represent her, I couldn't. Um, so I did give her some advice about, you know, here's what I think you should do and here's who I think you should talk to. And I was able to help her out with, um, some local agencies that I have relationships with. One of the owners of a local agency wrote a declaration saying, look, this is how the process works. And if things fall through, you know, unfortunately it is the financial responsibility of the intended parent to deal with this. And you can't actually have a surrogate legally sign an agreement until they've had independent representation. It would be unethical to do that. And so that is part of the process is paying for that representation, even if that means that then they decide not to sign the agreement. And, uh, and she actually, she got some calls from uh, Judge Judy and a couple of, <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's kind of a crazy case. It's, it's, yeah. Um, they did decide, she decided at the end of the day, she didn't want to go on TV. She wanted to protect her privacy, which I think is completely reasonable. That's good. And she went to small claims court and brought this declaration and, you know, some, some copies of the communications between them. And I don't think there was much of oral arguments or anything, but, you know, happily a few weeks later, she got a letter in the mail saying that she did not owe him any money and that, uh, that the case was being dismissed. And so it ended well, but it took a lot of heartache to get there. Right. And that's scary. If someone is thinking about being a gestational carrier, that some crazy person might sue them if they back out, if they you know, learn more information and decide it's not for them. I mean, it's good hearing that, of course, that the intended parent lost, but um, I guess the the lesson would be don't don't find the intended parent on Craigslist. I, I don't know. What, what are your lessons learned from <laughs> this story? Yeah, yeah, I would say Craigslist might not be the best place to find intended parents. I would also say if you decide, look, I'm always going to tell you to go with an agency. I think agencies are there for a reason. They're there to protect you. They're there to protect intended parents. They're there to do screening that you're just not going to think to do without them. Um, I think they're, they're, they're really, really valuable resources. But that being said, if you choose not to go with an agency, I just would make it really clear to any intended parent that you speak with that you're not going to agree to any really serious contract terms until you have legal representation, that you understand that that's part of the process and that, you know, you want to talk to a lawyer who's an expert in this field who can guide you through it and say, this is what's standard practice. This is what he's asking for. What she's asking for is, is, is completely normal and that's completely acceptable. Or, you know, this actually is, is not fair to you and they can't be asking you to do that. So don't make any agreements that then could set on, you know, set you up for uh, disappointed expectations later on, because I think so much of communication and all of that is just about expectations. And so I think communicating can't make those promises before you've been represented is really, really important. Right. And do you know how everyone ended off? Did, did she ever become a surrogate again? Do you know if he had children? Um, I believe he ended up uh, implanting both embryos in the other surrogate who he'd been talking to. And as far as I know, that surrogate is pregnant right now. 
Oh, this, um, is this is recent. This is this is fresh. Okay. Um, and the surrogate who I represented, um, I'm still in touch with her. She's still considering going into surrogacy again, but she obviously this has kind of put her off from it a bit. I think she's more, right. Yeah. I'm sure I feel burned by that. Yeah, but I'm, I told her I'm so know, mentally like stuck on how does he think that he's going to control both babies being born on the same day? Was he planning for them to deliver in the same hospital? I mean, like, in the same room? How is he going to handle all of this? I have no idea. I mean, clearly, his expectations were not realistic. Um, But I think at the very least, what he wanted was, you know, to do the transfers close together and then do the best he could. We've even dealt with, you know, similar cases where people wanted multiple. And, I mean, one of the things I talk about is maybe you actually want to offset them by a month or two. Because what happens if you if you end up with a catastrophic moment where they're both in labor at the same time? You want at least a little bit of time to be able to be able to handle both. Yeah. I don't think I really thought through Yeah. Obviously not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, thank you for sharing that with us. That's definitely an an interesting story. And I feel like a lot can be, be learned from it for, for both sides and having realistic expectations and getting support going through this process. Um, Okay. So I know we, we previously um, touched on before this, before recording, um, so that you had some interesting sperm donation um, situations that occurred. So changing gears do you want to tell us a little bit about um, one of your other horror stories? Yeah, so this is an ongoing horror story because he's still oh, no. a current client. Um, so I have a, a sperm donor right now who's being sued for child support, which uh, does not make sense. Yeah, does not make sense. It's really not the way the law works. Um, so the so they also surprise surprise found each other online. Uh, did not use an agency, did not use a sperm bank, uh, didn't have any sort of mediation or guidance or screening of any kind. Uh, I think there was some sort of chat room or something involved. <laughs> this was a while ago. Um, I think this was, you know, like the, the children are already like older children at this point. Um, but he somehow found uh, these two intended mothers online. They said that they were looking for a sperm donor. They were in a registered domestic partnership with each other and they decided to go through with it. Um, he printed a sperm donor agreement off the internet, which again, I would never oh. recommend. Um, but that was what he chose to do. <laughs> um, and they signed it together and he donated for them actually twice over the course of two years. They had two kids um, from his sperm donations And uh, everything seemed to be fine until several years later when they came back and decided to sue him for child support. So uh, it's been quite the process. And what, what led to that? Did they, did they divorce or I guess um, in this case end their, their partnership if they weren't married? Uh, They were, they were in a registered domestic partnership. So in California, Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's given, the legal weight of a marriage, although they didn't ever get legally married as far as I know. Um, I think, and I, I don't know the full story on their side because like I said, I'm not representing them, but I think they were still together when they filed the case. But by the time this case has been going on for almost two years now. And had they been in communication with him? Was he, had he been acting as a father and therefore they thought he should nothing, be paying? Nothing. Communication. He'd never met the kids. Absolutely nothing. So, so what was their justification that he should pay child support besides the fact that he was biologically, you know, gave them a gamete? 
Yeah, there's not much more than that. Um, they argue that uh, he didn't disclose some genetic stuff about himself that then is coming up in one of their kids now, um, which that I honestly, I can't say what was disclosed and what wasn't. I also think that genetics are very, very complicated and they, I'm not going to get into the exact details of it because I do want to protect privacy, but right. it's, it's a genetic thing that that you can't even link. Like even now in this was years ago that this happened. And I just talked to a genetic counselor like two weeks ago who said only now are we getting to the point where we can screen for 40% of that gene. And you know, the other 60% is random variation and we wouldn't be able to screen for that. So it's not something like, you know, fragile X or something that's very clear, you know, this is a recessive trait and this can happen. You know, it was not one of those kinds of things. Um, so they were, they felt um, that they had sort of been, in the process but honestly i think it was more they were sort of in a bad financial place they did some money and there was there was a loophole in california law that they could have taken advantage of when they filed their case so it used to be in california that the only way to cut off the rights of a sperm donor as a parent was to use either a um a surgeon or a doctor or a sperm bank and they didn't do that they used at-home insemination and back in those days, you couldn't actually cut off a sperm donor's rights that way. So when they filed the case, technically, they had a claim because they didn't use a doctor. Um, but California has been very smart, and we have the National Center for Lesbian Rights advocating a lot for these kinds of issues, which is great there in San Francisco. And they got the law changed to say, no, no, you can still use at-home insemination because, look, people are going to be doing this anyways. We need to still protect the intended parents and the sperm donors who are in these situations. So under California law now, starting in, on January 1st of 2016, um, as long as there's either a written agreement that the sperm donor will not be a parent or clear and convincing evidence of an oral agreement that the sperm donor won't be a parent, then the sperm donor is not a parent. So your case would be pretty clear cut with a written agreement, right? Yes, they had a written agreement um, and the law is retroactive. So as soon as that law went into effect, their case was over. Um, they claim that they never saw the whole contract, that they only saw it signed the final page. But the final page lists them as intended parent one, intended parent two, and sperm donor, which I think is fairly clear. You know, obviously. So they're trying to claim that even the agreement said that he would pay child support or that he would be a parent? I, honestly, I don't even know what their claim is because, you know, we have. So I came into the case about a year after it started. So the depositions had already happened at that point. But I read through their depositions and they openly admit we never intended for him to be a parent. We just wanted him to be a sperm donor. We don't want him to have custody of the kids now. So I really don't know what they're trying what their to end game. Is. Well, it, it's money, it's right? bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, money. They're, right. They want money. That's what they want is they want money. But, you know, you can't get a finding for child support unless you get a finding for parentage. And under California law, it's very clear that he's not a parent. So, you know, maybe if they had, I mean, also they're arguing they never saw the contract. So then, you know, they're complaining about his not disclosing things that they wanted to know about him. They don't have any contract requirement that he discloses anything if they didn't see the contract. And if they did see the contract, it's very clear in the contract that they signed that that they would not sue if any of the children had any sort of genetic defects or anything. You know, they, they signed away those rights. They also, of course, signed away rights to sue for child support. So I think... That may be why they're claiming that they didn't see the contract, because I think there was also even a, a breach of contract clause that said if they did sue, that he could turn around and sue for intentional infliction of emotional distress and all these other things. So 
he has a right to countersue in that contract. Right. Are they offering for him to see the children and have, you know, rights with them? Because that would be the, the other yeah. side of paying child support is that he should be seeing his kids at if they are his kids. Right. If they're his kids, he has that right. And and it's so he had a lawyer and then for a while he was in pro per and now I'm representing him with someone else. And and when he was representing himself, he did the depositions and he actually asked them. He said, well, do you want me to have rights to see your kids? Do you want me to come visit them and, you know, have custody? And of course they said no. And, you know, he doesn't want to be a parent to these children. He has his own children. You know, it's that's not what anyone in. But, you know, it's one of these things where it seems silly, but it's a very serious case because if we don't get this dismissed with prejudice, then it opens up the door to not only other intent, other parents like this going after their sperm donors for money, but vice versa, it also donors. opens the door to unscrupulous sperm donors, right. exactly, saying, hey, I want, you know, I'm going to sue you for access to your kids if you don't give me money. They're so, scary. you know, it's a, it's it's silly it seems insane that it's even happening but it's actually a very serious case which is why you know my co-counsel and i took it on because it's something that you know really needs to just be dealt with and and sent away as as quickly as possible right well good luck to you i i hope that is resolved as it should be yeah please i would say when it does please let us i actually i'd love to have you come back and we'll talk about how it resolved because that's a it's that's really terrifying all the way around for everybody yeah yeah, I'll be happy to come back and chat Yay, more about it. Good. Have a great updates. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so, so we have, I know, again, as Ellen mentioned, we, we talked to you beforehand about it. So I know we have one more uh, sperm donor case because apparently today is sperm donor day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every day in my book. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we do like to hand out sperm as a uh, part of our, you know, everything, everyday life as well. So, you know, it's all sperm donor day every day. <laughs> and and by handing out sperm, she means like sperm squeezies or like stress balls. She doesn't hand out actual sperm. That's, Just that's, <laughs> that's fair. They are plastic, but you know, still. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Uh, okay. So you do have one more sperm donor related case. And I find this one just really fascinating from a just a whole overall picture so i'd love to let you start talking about it though yeah absolutely so this case is um less scary than the others but still just a warning to make sure that you are you know screening properly and and getting a good lawyer who knows what they're doing also because this was something that probably anyone other than the lawyer or a really good sperm bank even a sperm bank i don't think would realize that this is an issue so it's uh, another lesbian couple. They were using so they were using a known donor. This was a friend of theirs, and um, the the guy had actually donated to them once before, but they were living in a different state, and they were you know being really diligent. And they said we want to do another contract because we're going to ask him to donate again, and we've moved states. We're now in California, and we'd like you to you know draft a California contract so that we're all protected. So to clarify, did they have a child from the first donation? Yes, they had okay. a child from the first donation. They had a contract. Like everything seemed fine. Um, you know, obviously the donor was comfortable working with them because he was willing to donate again. Um, and so they hired me to draft their new contract under California law. And, um, this, so part of it is actually not part of this is specific to California and part of this is national. So there's ICWA, which is the Indian child welfare act, um, which applies to adoptions of children who are members of an Indian tribe or eligible to be members of a Native American tribe in the United States. Um, it's 
it's complicated and who is in and who is out gets, gets really kind of messy. Um, but in my standard contract, I have a line in there about, you know, that the donor is not of native American descent or a member of a tribe or eligible to be a member of a tribe because technically depending upon what state you're in, you know, if you're doing a sperm donor, especially if you're a same sex couple using a sperm donor, you may still have to, you should still be undergoing some sort of legal process to recognize the non-biological parent as the legal parent of the child. And just to give a little bit of context, do you, if you can, can you give like a very short background of ICWA and why it's there and why it's so important and why it's, why it's a big deal? Yeah, so ICWA was actually um, brought about because I think I'm probably going to get the dates wrong, but I want to say in the 1940s and 50s, and I could be wrong, don't quote me on that, um, there was this tendency for child services to go into Native American families and, you know, misinterpret or see what is sort of standard family life in a Native American tribe, misinterpret that as, you know, not what they saw as an appropriate family dynamic or family family care situation and take those children away from those families and then put them in white families and adopt, have them adopted out to white families who were more in line with their standards of what a quote unquote normal family should look like. And this became a really serious issue. And so ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, was passed, which basically said that if any Native American child is going to be adopted, they have to get permission from the tribe. And the primary goal is to keep the child within the tribe if possible. And that if they're going to be adopted outside of the tribe, there needs to be permission from the tribe. So it's very strict um, and it's it can get very complicated very quickly. Um and it was written, I think, in a time when sperm donation and all these assisted reproduction options weren't really a thing. And so people don't really know how it applies. And there's debate, there's legal debate about whether ICWA would apply to a sperm donor agreement. But so then the other side of that, the other side of the legal part of that is when you have two parents and one is not biologically related to the child, you know, especially with a same sex couple, you always want to make sure that you have a legal judgment of parentage, not just the parent being on the birth certificate. The way I try to explain this to my clients is the same way before marriage equality and before the Supreme court was recognizing all same sex marriages, you had a marriage certificate, you could cross state lines and another state could say, well, we don't recognize your marriage certificate here. They can do the same thing with a birth certificate now because it's an administrative document. It's not a legal judgment. So only legal judgments are required by the constitution to be recognized across state lines, which is why same-sex couples who uh, should be having some sort of adoption or parentage order, some sort of legal judgment, recognizing both of them as the legal parents of their children. It's just a way to protect their parentage. Yeah. And, I, and I'm glad you explained that because I, I frequently try to explain full faith and credit and how a birth certificate doesn't have full faith and credit <laughs> while a court order does. But I thought that was a good, a good way of explaining it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So in here in California, you know, the law is, is pretty same sex couple friendly and we have a few options for how a same sex couple can have their parentage recognized. So one is what's called a step-parent adoption to confirm parentage. And when a couple's married and they have a child, 
um, where one is the biological parent and one is not, or even if um, you have the cases of co-maternity where one is the one is the genetic mother and one is the gestational mother, which gets a little more complicated, we can still do a step-parent adoption to confirm parentage. It's a fairly streamlined process. It's The filing fee is pretty low, um, but it's, it's a quick, easy way to get a legal judgment of parentage for both of them. The thing is, it is called an adoption, which means that it will trigger ICWA because ICWA applies to adoptions. So even though they're completely you know, in some sense, seemingly unrelated, you know, this isn't a child being taken away from a home, right? This is a child who's born into this marriage. It can trigger ICWA. So in California, it's actually problematic. If you have a Native American sperm donor, you may actually then have to go through the ICWA process and get permission from the tribe for the parents to do their confirmatory step-parent adoption to protect their own parentage rights. Now, some may argue that there are, so there are other legal, I don't want to get too into the weeds here because I think that it's going to get too complicated, but there are other legal options that people can take in California that may sort of work around the ICWA issues, but it's something that people need to think through. So I was working with these clients. I have this line in the sperm donor contract about Native American descent. And my client says, well, actually, he is Native American. He's, you know, we did some sort of, I don't know, 23 me or one of those genetic tests. He's about a third Native American. And it's his, you know, great, great. It was, it was something, it was, it was a, you know, a, a generation or two back, but it was there. And I said, oh. And so, and was it was it unknown to him when he donated the first time as well? Yeah, so they knew the first time, but apparently no one brought it up in their first donation. So I don't know why it didn't get brought up in the first donation, which is why I say you want to make sure that you've got good legal counsel who are asking all the right questions also. And sometimes it's, it's hard to know what you don't know, right? How do you know to ask your lawyer, like, well... Do you know everything you're supposed to know? <laughs> right. So, you know, are you asking all the right questions? That's, right. It's a hard, it's a hard judgment to make. But now, hopefully, people who hear this will know that Native American descent can be complicated. So it, it ended up being fine. It turned out that he was not a registered member of the tribe, and I called the tribe and made sure that, you know, he was sort of distant enough from his relationship to it that it wasn't going to trigger ICWA. But that's something that, you know only a lawyer who's really being detail oriented and really checking all their boxes and dotting all their I's and crossing all of their T's is going to know to even ask that question and then do the digging to make sure whether or not it applies. So it didn't apply in that case. All ended up perfectly fine, but it is something that people who should, who are working with known donors should be thinking about is, is this Native American thing. Right. And I think it shows that this area of law kind of intersects with a lot of other different areas like estate planning where children can be born after the death of a parent. And here with ICWA, I think there's a lot of interesting um, intersections and new issues that no one had thought of before coming up. Absolutely. Same-sex marriage, immigration, tax, healthcare. I mean, there's so many different issues that can come up. Yeah. So what are, um, what would you say your lessons learned from that one are? Find an attorney who's heard of ICWA. <laughs> yes, find an attorney who's heard of ICWA. You know, I mean, I think especially if you are a same-sex couple, it's great to work with an attorney who um, has that expertise, who really understands, you know, the differences between a civil union and a marriage and a registered domestic partnership and is asking some questions about where, you know, your past and your present and, and really making sure that everything is taken care of because I think that it's very common to get attorneys, you know, you say, oh, I'm, I'm doing a sperm donor agreement and, and there might be a, a divorce attorney who's like, yeah, I'm a family law attorney. I can help you with that. And 
that's not the same thing. You know, you want somebody who is both an expert on family formation law, so on sperm donor agreements and parentage. And, you know, if you're a same-sex couple or even an unmarried different sex couple, you may want to talk to an attorney who has that expertise because there can be complications depending upon your state. I, I just want to make it clear. I practice in California. I can only talk about California law, but the state varies, you know, the, the law varies from state to state and you want to make sure that you're really protected fully. Right. Well, and even in, I know single parents as well, I mean, also can right. have some issues, yeah. you know, because some states do not allow only one name to be listed on a birth certificate. Right. Yeah. So it's absolutely. And like I said, I think that uh, your your friendly LGBT lawyers tend to be really good at all of those different family family structures. You know, even if you're, you know, there are people who are friends who decide to co-parent together. There are, you know, poly families who are multiple parents, more than two parents. You know, there's all different family structures. And you want to make sure that uh, if you have a structure that is not a mom and a dad who are married, if you have basically anything outside of that, you want to make sure that you are talking to someone who knows about that. And there are, you know, there are national and state bar associations where you can look up people who are involved in those issues so that you know that you're talking to somebody who has that expertise. That's great. Good. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like these these were all really interesting stories and also a lot can be learned from them about the area in general and tips for people who might be forming their families through sperm donation or surrogacy and kind of new things to look out for and to, uh, to know kind of the, the obstacles to try to avoid and better ways to do it. So I really appreciate your time for joining us and I look forward to um, you joining us again for updates on these yeah. cases in the future. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> So thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. And I can't wait to uh, give you updates and, and hear how this comes out. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Those were fascinating cases. I think our lesson of the day today is a pretty easy one. Always consult an attorney. So whether you're using your friend for sperm donation or going to an IVF clinic, really realize there are some serious legal issues and it's always a good idea to talk to an attorney. So yay for attorneys. Also, I will just add to that an attorney that specializes in this area of law is especially important. Not just not just your buddy who does bankruptcy law, you know, all those so really important stuff. But yeah, in, incredible lesson of the day today. Um, so if you like what you've heard, uh, want to hear more of us, we would really love it if you would go to iTunes and give us a review and tell them that you like us. It helps us out in the long run, uh, makes it so that we're easier to find for everybody else. The other thing we have is, if anybody's interested, we have, if you go to Patreon, we have a community for subscribers at I Want to Put a Baby in You. Our subscribers to our Patreon account will be given access to a Slack channel where we can continue the conversation about anything related to infertility, anything that interests you about the people that we've spoken to. We can just continue that conversation. So go to Patreon and subscribe. We would love it if you joined us over there. And you get access to bonus episodes that we have created if you're on Patreon. Yay. Well, thank you for joining us and stay tuned for more interesting and fascinating episodes in this area. And a quick uh, shout out to Chris Wright at Work at Bird Studios in Denver. Thank you for all your help. Thanks. Bye.